If you have your Bible with you, please open it to the book of 1 Timothy, and we will be in chapter 2 this morning. As we begin, I would like to actually draw your attention back to the bulletin. The bulletin is filled with a number of interesting and, and good facts for you that will aid you in worship and will help you as, to know what's going on across way throughout the, the day. We've got our responsive reading in there. The songs that we sing, if you don't know the words, you can find them there. There's a whole pile of good, knowledgeable information there for you and for the help that we want to give you throughout the week. Part of that is this back page that says, Together in Word and Prayer. Now, as a separate advertisement that has nothing at all to do with my sermon today, I would remind you that we do have a Bible reading plan there for you, for your help, for your education, so that you can take in the Word of God. If you want, there's extra help on the website. Do a little devotional every week, and there are videos that will help sort of ground you in the Word, in that book, uh, as we walk through that together. If you haven't done one of these before, Pick up this week. Start this week and and continue on reading Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and the Psalms. Uh, Do this because it's good for you. But I would like to draw your attention to the other thing that is in the bulletin right below that, and that is prayer. We pray for missions, we pray for the world, and we pray for ministries. And pray for missions because we believe that there are missions out there in the world in dark places that need the uplifting of the saints' prayer in order to move them forward in the gospel. And so this section of the text is typically taken up with praying for international missions, people who are living in foreign countries. We want to pray for. We pray for Pastor June and Ramon just this morning. We pray for Doug and Tracy as they are living in China. We pray for other churches in China. We pray for places all over the world that they might be encouraged and set up in the gospel. We even do the same thing for local ministries, which is why we have ministries at the bottom. We pray for other local churches that are not associated with us through our our area association. We do also pray for those churches, like we prayed for Riverbend, Riverwalk, and the Valley this morning. We pray for other local ministries, like Beacon of Hope, as they do the good work that they are doing. Uh, We pray that God is with them and helping them. In the middle of all of that, though, we also pray for the world. We pray for the world for leaders and powers in the world. We pray for local governments. We pray for our federal government. We pray for the public schools. Today, we even prayed for culture. And specifically, you'll notice as you read through that, people in the culture, people who form the culture. The question is, why should we do such thing? Why take up our time? And you, hopefully, taking up your week, looking at that, praying for those things. I pray for them in the pastoral prayer, but you ought to be praying for them throughout the week. It's a good reminder for me. I I don't very often do that. It is a good reminder for all of us to be praying for these things. Why ought we pray for leaders? Why ought we pray for those who are in positions of authority and power? Why ought we pray for people who influence things? Why should we take our time praying for the federal government? And what I mean by that for those of you who have a little bit of Ron Swanson in you, is not that you're praying for the demise of the federal government and that it implodes, okay? That's not what we're praying for. You'll notice one of the things that Paul is going to say here that I'm going to press upon is that you are to be thankful for these things. It's not just interceding. It's not just asking God for things for the federal government and for the state government. No matter how many bridges break down, you have to give thanks to God for the things that he has given to us even more difficult, I think, is praying for things like culture. 
Why pray for the people who form and shape culture? Why pray for artists like Drake and Taylor Swift? Why pray for people at Disney who produce all of that content that we so greedily take in? Why pray for music producers and other things like that? What's more, if we come to the passage that we're going to read here in just a second, how is this supposed to help your evangelism? And I really truly think that it's meant to do so. I think that this passage is placed where it is, sandwiched in between statements of salvation by Jesus Christ, that this is the very salvation that Paul proclaims, that he has handed down to Timothy to proclaim, that at the end of this he says, this was given to me to proclaim. I am appointed a preacher and I'm an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, he says. How are we to speak about these things? How do such prayers for people who are leaders, for kings and all who are in high positions help us to win our brothers and sisters, help us to win our neighbors, help us to win our co-workers, help us to win random people on the street to the Lord. Let us go to the word of the Lord and see if we can't answer some of these questions. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the perfect and inerrant word of our God. First thing I want to place before you, ladies and gentlemen, is that prayer is our mandate. Prayer is our mandate. Given what has happened just recently in 1 Timothy, Paul has said there is a, a statement that is trustworthy. It is deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Paul says, this was given to me as a ministry, as a service that I am to carry out. In Timothy, it is the very charge that I am entrusting to you. It is the message and the proclamation of the gospel to save sinners. What we would expect then, we would expect something along the line of how we are to evangelize people, how we are to win them, how this gospel is meant to go forward. How are we supposed to preach it? How are we supposed to teach it? How are we supposed to take it out to the people in the world? But we don't get that. I don't think that Paul means to skip that. I think that Paul understands that there's something else there that is of first importance. Notice how he says this, first of all, given that he's already said it, to insert something there as first of all and to urge people to do it, it must be tremendously important. If we are going to be sowers of the word, if we are going to be people like Jesus has called us to be in that famous parable where we are throwing out the word of God and seeing where it lands and seeing how it grows, we would do well to be tillers of the soil before we are simply sowers of the seed. If we were to go and try and plant corn in that field out there and we were just to take seed and throw it out there, some of it would surely grow. 
But not nearly as much if we tilled the soil, we aerated it, we got nutrients mixed up and killed off the weeds and provided good soil for that crop to grow in. When we do that, the crop will grow 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, 100 times what it would before. And that is what Paul is doing here. He's laying the groundwork. He's saying, listen, first of all, if you are going to proclaim the gospel, you need to do something before you do that. Before you are worried about taking this charge forward, you are to stop and I urge you to pray. I urge you to pray. And not just for everyone, although he does that, for kings and all who are in high places. It is primary. It is urgent. It is important. And this is for Timothy and for everyone else as well. He says, first you are to pray for everyone. Prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. You are to pray for your neighbors. You are to pray for the people who are down the street. You are to pray for the annoying woman who talks way too loud on her phone at your work. You are to pray for the person who has her turn signal on and looks like they're going to turn but never turns even though the light is green because they're on their phone. Pray for those people. But don't just pray for intercession for them. Again, give thanks to God. They've been made in his image. Thank God for those people. But Paul very quickly turns and in verse 2 points out something that is strange. He says that we're not just praying for all people as though what you're doing before you go and you take the gospel to people is you're asking God to be with you, to help them. He says you're going to pray for kings and for people in high positions. Now given the fact that Christians were a very lowly bunch, especially in the first century, it is unlikely that any of the people, even Timothy, that Paul is writing to will ever come across people who are truly in high positions of authority or for kings. Timothy's not going to run across Caesar on the street. And he is told, pray for them. We can understand praying for everybody. We can understand if you're going to go witness to your neighbor, a good idea would be to pray before you do that. Pray for opportunities. Pray for words as you, as you go and chat with him. But you don't sit down and think, I'm going to go pray for my neighbor. Father God, please help Donald Trump lead our country. It's not just those who are kings. It's anyone in prominent position. When he says high positions, he just means people who are prominent in the culture. It doesn't even have to be prominent in politics. They hold sway. They are elevated above the rest. Thus, we are to pray for those who form cultures as well as those who are forming laws. So pray for your neighbor, but pray for the president. Pray for the speaker of the house. Pray for Donald Trump. Pray for Nancy Pelosi. Pray for the people who produce records. Pray for the people who make art. Pray for the people who form and shape our culture. Pray for the people who form and shape our laws. We do this whether power is part of their title and in part of, of everything that they do or whether it is just part of the social capital that they have. This is the mandate that we've been given. This is what Paul is saying, first of all, you are to do. You are to pray for these people. But Paul... Paul will give us reasons. And what happens after those first two verses is a cascade of reasons. One building on another, building on another, building on another to show us why these things are connected the way they are. First, the first reason he gives is because praying for them allows us to live quiet and godly lives. It lets us live quiet and godly lives. Now, Paul oftentimes had a wake of disaster follow him wherever he went. You know, pig pen from peanuts, how that little clouded dirt, that was what Paul did. Every time he went someplace, things got thrown up in the air. Things were never quite the same. So we read in Acts 17 about Paul in Thessalonica. And the Jews were jealous. 
And they took some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, that is Paul and his friends, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. The gospel, as Paul brought it to the Roman world, was turning over the world. It was causing incredible economic problems for people everywhere. It was causing an upheaval in the way that Romans viewed. Because remember, we like a separation of church and state, but for Romans, it was incredibly united. To not pray to the Roman gods was to leave Rome vulnerable for attack. It was a political thing to do as well. And to claim that Jesus Christ was king alongside of Caesar, or in Christian's case, well above Caesar, is indeed a political claim. And so they were continually talked about as though they were nothing more than insidious. They were insurrectionists. This happened not only in Paul's day, it happened throughout the Roman Empire. Christians clearly and continually had to battle these sorts of accusations. No, they said, we are good citizens. We're not trying to overthrow anything. Indeed, what they continually proclaimed is it was the gospel that was doing this. It's not them. They're not trying to. They want to be good citizens. Listen, they weren't drumming up riots and mobs. They were not the proletariat planning the overthrow of the capitalist pigs. That's not the, the goal and the, the mandate that they were given. They were simply taking the gospel out and letting the gospel do its work. In other words, it was the gospel that changed the social fabric. The people sought as best they could to live peaceably with one another and to be the best citizens they could. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably among all. That is the goal of Christians, to live peaceably among all people. That is what we ought to strive for. It is good in the sight of God. Now, part of that recognition is that it always doesn't require just you. That there is a limit to the amount that you can put up with where you cannot live peaceably. But nevertheless, you are to do as much as you can. It's true, it takes two to tango and one to make war. But you've got to let them make war. Don't dance with them in that. Live peaceably among them. So friend, as we pray for politicians and people of influence, we're doing so so that we, and I think by Paul he means all of society, can live peaceful and godly lives. This might seem like an evident good in itself, but Paul continues to provide a reason why living peaceful and godly lives is important and good. So our second reason is this, because God, our Savior, deems it good. Paul says very clearly, this is good. It's good to live a peaceful and quiet life. It's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God. So you should pray for it because it seems to be in the will of God that this is a good thing for you to do. You should live peaceful and quiet lives and you should be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. It is a good thing, Paul says, and God deems it to be that way. So you are to pray and intercede for people who are in high positions. You are to pray and intercede for kings and presidents, for local governments, for state governments, for federal governments. You are to do this because it is a good gift from God. And be reminded 
that any of the problems that you might have with our federal government, any of the problems that you might have with how they are arranged and how they are working, Paul is probably unaware of, and it probably doesn't matter. See, when Paul wrote this letter, there was a Caesar who was over him, and his name was Nero, and he was not known as a good person. And while it would have been probably a couple years yet before he fiddled and then burned Christians, nevertheless, anyone who is willing to do that has a reputation of a man who is willing to do anything that he wants to simply because he can. Paul knew the Roman government was not his friend. And yet he urges for people to give thanks for the rulers who are above them. If we believe, and we ought to, that Paul can give thanks for the rulers who are above him, there is no reason in the world, friend, why you cannot give thanks for Donald Trump, and there is no reason in the world why you cannot give thanks for Nancy Pelosi. None. We pray for them because it seems to be God's will. You are to do this because God himself deems it a good thing to do. And if you think that praying for either one of those two people is a rancid, worthless thing to do, that might tell you a good deal more about who you are and how you and God don't see alike. Because God apparently thinks it's an excellent thing to do. That peace is something that you should uphold, something that you ought to find pleasing just as God finds it pleasing. Listen, if you wake up in the morning, you crack your knuckles and you say, God put me on this earth for two things, chewing gum and owning the libs. Listen, you ought to rethink that, go back to sleep, go out, buy a bigger pack of gum and make sure that you hand it to as many liberal people as you can and get to know them and pray for them. Because that attitude is not the attitude of God, it is not the attitude of Paul, it's not the attitude of Jesus, it's not the attitude of any godly person anywhere. Watch how you act. Watch how you speak online. There are plenty of people who are out there throwing up as much dust as they can to try and get it in everyone's eyes to poke them. You are to live peaceably. And praying for people and giving thanks for people is one of the best ways to do that. Secondly, while this is not just God's will he doesn't just say he is God. And then what we might expect is, is a title to be applied to God here that would imply that he is in some position of authority over us. Although the word God kind of does that as well, we would expect that if we're praying for people in authority, what Paul might do is Paul might say, remember, God is a person in authority over you. So to remind you of the likelihood and the likeness that those rulers and authorities have to God himself. So we might expect him to say, God, your maker, or God, the father, or God, the creator, or God, the almighty. But that's not what Paul says. He isn't interested in God's authority. What he does is he actually lists him as something that's not, not as authoritative, although it still has connotations of some authority, but he is God, our savior. Instead of listing his authority, instead of talking about his authority, what he does is talk about his grace and his kindness and his mercy. You are to pray for these people because your God is a savior. He is a kind and a merciful and a beneficent God. You pray for them so that you may live in peace because God is a savior. And why is that? Our third reason. He is that because he wants all to be saved. Paul says, This God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
in saying those two things, he's only saying one thing. God wants people to be saved. He wants people to know who Jesus Christ is, to entrust themselves to Christ, to find their sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross so that they might know him in his resurrection and be glorified with him. But that brings us to a very interesting point. If God wants all to be saved, how are we supposed to handle that particular verse? Let me give you four ways, three of which are wrong, one of which is right, one of which I believe is probably the one that I think is right, but we'll see. We'll play that out as we come. First, there's a substandard view of God's will. You can come to this and you can read this and say, well, I've read the rest of the Bible. I believe the Bible. I know that that not everyone's going to be saved. So maybe God really wants everyone to be saved, but he can't quite get them there. He's he's not quite able in his will to do what he really wants to do. He's frustrated in his will. Listen, friends, this is nothing less than heresy. You just can't believe that. When we talk about God's omnipotence, when we say that he is able to do anything that he wants to do, omnipotence is never, ever defined as God being able to do anything. What we define omnipotence by is God being able to do anything he wants to do. So if we believe that and we say that God wants all people to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth, we either have to explain what it means by he wants that or we have to assume that because that doesn't happen, well, then he doesn't have omnipotence. That is a substandard view. The second view is built off of it. Instead of assuming that his will can't be done, they assume blindly that his will must be done. And this is a substandard view of God's wrath. So some look at this and they say, hey, this verse shows us that in the very end, love wins. Everyone's going to be saved. Everyone's going to come to a knowledge of saving faith because it says right here, God wants that. And we know what God wants to have happen always happens. But this flies in the face of so much warning and literature in the New Testament that I don't even know where to begin. We can begin by naming the people who write against this. Paul, who wrote this, James, John, Jesus, Matthew, Luke, Mark, Peter, uh, Jude, uh, everyone who penned a letter in the New Testament stands against this. There isn't universal salvation. Hell is a real place. So because of that, we know that it can't mean that God is going to simply allow everyone to come to saving faith. That brings us to the third viewpoint, which is the Arminian view. The Arminian view demonstrates, or it seeks to demonstrate, that election can't be what we who are reformed claim it to be. They would look at this verse and they would say, you see what what we have here is God wants all men to be saved. Now, for those of you who believe in election, which is that God chose before the foundation of the world those who would come to a saving knowledge and didn't choose others for that same saving knowledge. Arminians look at that and they say, well, you see what you have here. If you believe in that system, you can't actually believe that God wants all men to come to save, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't believe that he wants all men to be saved because if he did, then all men would be elect. What they say is that this sort of shows that God trusts men free will, that he allows men to have free will and that he puts before them a choice. You can choose to accept or you can choose to reject. 
So God wants all to come to know him, and the only way to think that this is so is to insist that man has a free will which can accept the gospel or to reject the gospel. Not so fast, say the Reformed people. First, let's talk about that little word, all. What does it mean when Paul says that God wants all to come, all people to be saved? We typically read that as everyone, but there's a really good indication in this text and a good indication in 1 Timothy that that's not at all what Paul means by the word all. Instead of meaning all as in everyone, it's very likely that he means all in terms of all kinds of people. We get this primarily because you'll notice in the first chapter he talks so much about the law, people mishandling the law, wanting to apply the law, but not knowing really what it's there for and what it's there to do. The people who are most likely to act that way are Jews. Here, at the end, in verse 7, he talks about how he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. What Paul is likely getting at is that God is a savior of all mankind. He is not a savior just for the Jews. He is a savior and he wants all peoples, places, tongues, and nations to come to know him. And so all here means all kinds of people. It means all all tongues of people, all nations of people, all ethnicities of people, every kind of person to come and to know him. But we can even back up and just assume that it means all people. Let's talk then about the love of God for all people and his desires for all people and how there are things that trump his desires. So in other words, God can want things on several different levels. Just like you want things on several different levels and I want things on several different levels. God can write through the prophet Ezekiel about how he wants the people of Israel to turn and repent from their sins and to come and trust him. One of the best passages for this is in Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32. Paul writes, or excuse me, Ezekiel writes, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, this is God speaking, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone." In other words, I don't want anyone to die, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. But he clearly does allow them to die. And the fact that he calls upon them here in Ezekiel 18 to say, put within yourself a new heart and put within yourself a new spirit. The very fact that in Ezekiel 36, he's going to turn around and say, nah, never mind about all that. I will do that for you. Indicates that free will is not his biggest priority. The promise of the new covenant is actually that he won't allow your free will to continue to mess things up anymore. That's the whole point of him giving you a new life and a new heart and a new spirit. We think that God wants his eternal decree of election to stand more than his desire to see all come to salvation. In other words, Acknowledging God's glory and first place in salvation means more to God than the salvation of every single sinner in the world. We do this. We choose. We can like one thing and like something else more. If someone came to me and told me, 
you can never eat cereal again, or I'm going to take one of your kids. I would never touch cereal again. It would be really hard. I love my kids. I love cereal a lot. But I would still choose not to have cereal again ever if it meant that I could keep all three of my kids, right? And I love both of these things very, very much. You can still love it. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love the world. It doesn't mean that even while his hatred for sin burns against people, that he doesn't also have his heart longing and loving them. Even as he says in Ezekiel, I don't take pleasure in killing people. I don't take pleasure in banishing people to hell. Turn and repent and come to me. But God would rather you acknowledge his glory and his sovereignty and salvation than he would save all of humanity. By the way, Arminians play this game as well. They can say, well, it's clear that God wants all, so you're just putting something else above that want. That doesn't seem fair. Well, they do it as well because they know very well that God could reach down and flip all of us in an instant to faith. He can do it. They have to acknowledge it from Scripture that he, can, he does do it. But they don't think he wants to do it. They think that he wants to give people free wills so that they can reject the message instead of just saving them. It's the same game. We think that God loves all people. He wants them to come to know him and his son in the salvation purchased and, and given to us through the cross. Listen, friend, this is a good truth for you to hang on to. God isn't mean. His heart is not just angry, but it's filled with love even while his anger burns, even from those whom he will not save. So let us think about what Paul has said here. Let us think not just about this particular verse, but everything that he has said. Paul has a vast knowledge of the work of Jesus Christ, which he summarizes in the fact that Christ has come to save sinners. He says, I've left you, Timothy, and charged you with this very charge, that Christ has come to save sinners. Now go save them. But, he says, you need to pray first. You need to pray so that we can live quiet lives because it pleases God and because he wants all people to be saved. You'll notice that salvation bookends both of those passages. So the prayer in the middle of that is meant to incorporate the salvation of people on both the front and the back end. In other words, you pray for Donald Trump, not just for his soul. You pray for Donald Trump for the soul of your neighbor. You pray for people in positions of authority, not just for them and their own sake. You pray for the people that you know. You pray for your family. You pray for all of them. You, you help your evangelism through that. And I think that this makes a lot of sense. And we spend millions of dollars and countless hours of our time, an immense amount of political capital fighting against abortion. And we should. It is a gospel issue, even if it's not the gospel, because it speaks directly to such things as the image of God and how human life should be valued and God's great love and concern for the least and the oppressed. And it is an issue for those reasons that is closely tied to the gospel. It comes very, very close to a denial of the gospel to allow abortion to go on. But while we are fighting abortion, we cannot be preaching the gospel. While we're spending our time defending laws that ought to be passed, we are not spending time doing the things that God wants to have done to spread his gospel. And it's not that these things are wrong. Let me be very clear. I think that it's good and, yes, even mandatory that we fight these things. 
But the time and the effort and the energy and the money that we are putting toward that, we obviously, because we cannot be in two places at once and neither can our money, cannot be placed where we ought to have it placed, which is spreading the gospel abroad. So we pray that those who are in positions of authority are doing what God thinks is good so that we can live peaceably, so we don't have to fight and struggle and claw for respectable laws for people, so that we don't have to fight against the culture and we can spend our time doing the very things that God has put us here to do, to preach the gospel. There's a number of different things that surround this. It's not just abortion. We can talk about sex trafficking. We can talk about the issues surrounding race in our country. The gospel demands at some level that you want social justice. It demands it. The fact that Paul is asking you to pray for people who are in high positions and kings implies it strongly. And the only way that I can make sense of how this is put together is to say that these are issues, while they are not the gospel, they are awfully close to it and they ought to be very near and dear to our heart. These are things that we ought to fight for. And the more we pray about them, the more we seek to eliminate the difficulties that these make, the more time we can spend pushing the gospel out to the world. Think of how this plays out, not just in America. Think of how it plays out in Africa, in Iraq, in North Korea, and in China. People there are scared to be able to go up to a stranger and to tell them the gospel because they don't know if that's going to mean the end of their life, if that means punishment for them, if that means imprisonment for them. They have to work and come close to people for years and years and years before they might feel comfortable to invite them to church. How much freer would the gospel expand if they prayed for their leaders and their leaders understood the value of Christianity in the public sphere? How much faster and how much more open would God's salvation come to people if churches didn't have to be underground when they worshipped? This is the very thing, the very thing that Paul is asking us to pray about. Release the burden on the gospel that all these other issues put on it. Release the chains that kind of keep it tied up and allow us to fully and freely present the gospel to people and to put all of our effort and energy into that because as it is right now in our country, we can't do that. And all the more so for all the other countries where there is severe oppression of the Christian church. Prayer is our mandate for these things. The question is, will such prayer work? And indeed it will, for a number of different reasons, but Paul gives us a really excellent reason. Prayer is our mandate because Jesus is our mediator. He is a perfect mediator for us. And God's people were always tied to mediators. There always needed to be somebody to stand between them and God. Moses did this. Samuel did it. The priests were supposed to do this. They, they were intercessories between the people and God. But Jesus is better than them all. I had, uh, not too many weeks ago, I think I've told you about it, Jehovah's Witnesses come over. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are... Um, are people who are heretics. They're a sect. They want to be called Christians, but they're not Christians because they do not believe that Jesus is God. Okay? What they believe is that God, who is one and singular, strict monotheism, made a very powerful heavenly being. Whether or not they consider him an angel or something else, I'm not exactly sure, but they made a very powerful heavenly being, so powerful that he was godlike, 
and then sent him to earth to be embodied as a man. And then he won our salvation and he intercedes. And the gentleman who was a Jehovah's Witness was a lawyer and he was talking to me about being a lawyer and he says, I know what intercession's like. That's basically what I'm doing for my clients before a judge. It doesn't make any sense to me that Jesus could be both God and man and make intercession for people and be a mediator for people because he's God. If he's God, how can he intercede for God? How can he mediate to God? Listen, that's precisely what makes him the best mediator you could have. If you are going to have a mediator, it is best to have one who knows both the offended party and who knows the very sympathetic and knows the plight of the people that he's defending. Jesus Christ is perfectly that. He is God and man. So he is able to go before us and to mediate on our behalf. He's able to mediate on our behalf because he is fully human. He understands what it means for us to be tempted and he can sympathize with our failings. He knows the weight of temptation that is upon you. He knows what is thrust upon you each and every day. He has borne it and more than that because he never succumbed to it. He is able to sympathize with you then. Hebrews 4 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is a perfect mediator for you because he knows exactly what you're going through. But what's more, he's a perfect mediator for you because he knows exactly who sits on the other side. He knows the full weight of God's glory. He knows the full impact of sin. He has the same hatred and he thinks sin is just as ugly and he is fully aware of the horror of sin as God is for he is nothing less than God. So when he intercedes, there isn't this knowledge gap between a very mighty angel and God himself. He knows precisely what he's asking for when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do in a way that no one else could ever understand that. He is a perfect mediator because he is holy in every respect, in every regard. And when he goes to ask his father something, he knows precisely how weighty the thing is that he is asking. This great mediator who is perfect for us, both God and man, has given his life as a ransom. He shed his blood to purchase you. He gave his life to win you back. It was his choice he gave his life. Just as much as the Father sent him, because Jesus' will is the same as the will of the Father, Jesus willed to be sent just as much as the Father willed to send him. His love is proven to us in this, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And he laid down his life as a ransom for yours and for all of those who are called according to his grace by his election, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is our assurance that our desire to see those around us come to saving faith can be heard and will even be desired by God. Because the very God that we are praying through, the very God we are praying to, is the very one who has saved and given his own life as a ransom. He wants that more than anyone else in the universe to matter. Jesus Christ will save people. So you can pray for these things. You can pray for our leaders. You can pray for those in authority, knowing that it will help clear the ground for the gospel to go forward and provide a great salvation for all people. 
For the same one who gave his life as a ransom is the same one who came to save sinners. He is the very same one who has the ear of the Father in heaven, the very same one who has carried the weight of sin without falter, who knows a hatred of sin and the gravity of God's holiness, yet pleads in a sympathetic voice for you and for me. This very Jesus is our Savior, our mediator, and our God. So pray. Pray. Pray to the God who is in heaven, who is the Savior of all mankind, because he hears you and he will act on your behalf. This is indeed a great salvation. And friends, it is not to be, not to be neglected. It is to be taken everywhere. As we said, this isn't kind of good news. This is great news. This is great news for you, and it's great news for the world out there. But if this salvation is going to be on our lips, if we are to throw this gospel seed to the wind, friend, plow the soil in prayer. Put your hands to the plow and do the work of praying for your leaders, praying for the president, praying for his congress, praying for your state and local authorities, and praying for the people around you, that all men, women, and children might come to know the saving grace and loving kindness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray for those who lead this country. We are grateful for those who have you called into such service and ask that they might understand the importance and necessity of those positions. We pray that issues of gospel importance weigh on them and that in doing so they might begin to support godly, peaceful positions. Let this happen, Father, so that your gospel may go out unhindered and untethered by these great problems that loom over us. Indeed, as we know, such problems will ultimately only be undone by the gospel. So be with those in political power, in places of social import, and so change them that your gospel might flourish. We pray these things for your glory and our good, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.